0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stallberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on? Not much, Steve. Uh, It's good to be back for another episode of the Growth EQ Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great, great,
1: great. And I'm excited because this week we are returning to our listener mailbag AMA because it was so popular. We got more questions. So we're going to try and do our best to, you know, answer all those uh, for you guys. But before we get to answering your questions, we have a
0: new segment. What is that segment, Brad? So, the new segment is the review of the week. And every week we are going to be reading a five star review. So, we really thank listeners for subscribing and leaving reviews. It is what helps the podcast grow. So, this week we've got a review that came in from JWKP3. Ooh, I like it like CP3, but KP3. And here she says, this podcast has all of the great insights from Brad and Steve's books in an uncut format that shows the thoughts that bring their ideas to life. It is binge-worthy if you haven't started, and it's worth subscribing to get the weekly wisdom in your inbox. I recommend this to everyone I talk to because I know there isn't someone that wouldn't benefit from listening. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Jay. We, um, we really appreciate those kind words. We appreciate you um, spreading the word about our show. And we're so thrilled that this is like a double click on some of our thinking. And hopefully, it, it helps you apply these things to your own life. Um, so, a real warm thanks. I, I love this segment because it's like priming us for feeling good about
1: ourselves and having the confidence to really do a great job in this show. So, there you go.
0: All right. Well, with that, we've got our no-pressure interviewer back on the show, the one and only Caitlin Stahlberg, my dear wife. How are you this morning, Caitlin?
2: I'm doing great. I take it as a compliment that you guys have me back. I didn't screw up too bad last time, I guess.
0: Well, we actually haven't seen um, the downloads from the week after the AMA yet. So, um, we just know that a lot of people like the AMA, so we'll we'll see. But um, no, we got great feedback, Caitlin, and we are thrilled to have you back. So let's dive into some of the additional questions.
2: Cool. Okay. So you guys got a lot of questions about your routines, about what you what you do during the day, what you eat, what you read, how you work. So what I've tried to do is take a lot of those questions and put them sort of in, a, in an order of, you know, morning to night um, and really just focusing on the questions related to um, your routines. So the first question we have says, I tend to wake up around 7 a.m. and somehow 8.30 a.m. rolled around and I've done nothing. Maybe you made some coffee. Maybe you read one article. I feel like that's a lot of wasted time in my day. What do you do for the first 90 minutes that you are up? So Brad, what do you do?
0: You wouldn't know because you're still sleeping and rolling around reading one article. Maybe that question came from my wife. Um, What do I do? So, the first 90 minutes of the day are really sacred to me. It is a time when just my own kind of hormonal biological rhythm is at its best for doing deep focus work. And I'm sure that's aided by coffee. So, I have a routine where I make some coffee. My wife is on point for getting our son, Theo, woken up and ready for the day. And I take him to school around 8.30. So that, uh, you know, for him, it's preschool. Thank goodness they're back open. So I have from 7 to 8.30 for myself. And what do I do in that time? I read for probably about 20 to 25 minutes. And generally, it's a book that I read, though sometimes it can be something on the internet that I've um, identified in advance. So I try not to wake up and just go to Twitter or the news or something that's going to lure me in and kind of take control of my attention. I want to be proactive about what I do. Uh, And then that reading primes me to write or edit. So then I spend the next hour writing or editing the most important creative thing that I'm working on. Um, recently it is a big upcoming book project that we'll share more about in the future. Um, but it can also be the growth EQ blog post and newsletter of the week. It can be, um, an email that I have to write to a coaching client that's really important. So it's just a time to, Prime my brain by reading something good and then either write or edit um, something that's creative. Steve, what about you?
1: Oh, man. So, mine varies a lot depending on the time of the year. So, I'm going to give you two scenarios, which is basically when I'm in coaching running mode and when I am not. So, if I'm in coaching running mode, which means... We're meeting for practice with athletes that I work with, et cetera, et cetera. Then the first thing I do is I literally roll out of bed at six forty five in the morning and then then am at the trails or the park at probably about seven fifteen to get a get a run in or start practice, which when I'm at practice, I try and run as well with the team or with the individuals so my day almost inevitably starts with a run or some sort of exercise. Now in my non like if I'm not coaching that day, it still starts with a run if we're talking the summer months, because I live in Houston, Texas, and if you wait, you will die of heat and humidity. Now in the rare occasions where I get I can wait to exercise. What I try to do is my most cognitively demanding work um, first thing in the morning. And this applies even if I run. So, if I go for a run, I shower, blah, 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 recover, all that stuff, and then dive straight into my most cognitively demanding work. So, similar to you, Brad, that means identifying the, like, what's the biggest... Uh, most important item that I'm working on right now. A lot of times that's related to some sort of writing project. It's very clear when I'm in book writing mode or in blog writing, you know, or growth equation blog writing mode. But it could also apply to diving deep into some research related to one of those things. But something that, you know, I need my mind sharp. Uh, and ready to go is what I attack and I really try and be very deliberate and I have a whiteboard in front of my office in my house and I just write down the big thing that I'm trying to tackle that day and everything else is secondary and I try and get through that first before doing any social media the blah 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 etc on that stuff so again my day kind of changes based on my running practice the other thing that I'll mention there is, I am a a use coffee when I need it most kind of person. So I try and restrict my coffee use to two to three times per week uh, when I'm in kind of my deepest work sessions, and kind of save it for when I need it.
0: Yeah, and and I'm the opposite. I am a use coffee whenever I can kind of person. The, um, the other thing that I wanted to add that I was thinking about a little bit, Steve, while you were talking, is I used to be able to just hop out of bed ready to seize the freaking day. It was like, boom, the alarm goes off or even better. I wake up on my own at 6.30 and it's like, let's make the coffee and let's get to work. I am so stoked that I have this protected time to work on the most important thing. That's no longer the case. Probably when I turned around 30, I kind of lost that. Um, so I am no longer, let's seize the day out of bed. It is definitely a mood follows action kind of thing for me. So where, um, whereas it used to maybe take me literally two minutes to be like in deep focus work, now it takes me about 20 minutes. Um, and that's okay. It just, it, there's a little bit more inertia I have to overcome every morning um, in terms of getting out of bed. Do you pop out of bed still, Steve? I know you used to. Or is that something that um, that maybe it's just a part of aging? I don't know. Yeah, I think aging has a, plays a role in there.
1: Um, I would say I don't as much during COVID times. But I think I'm hoping that's related to a little bit more of COVID and just routines and all that stuff getting thrown out. Um, I think because... Most of the time, my first thing that I do is go run. I'm pretty good at just popping out of bed and, you know, having that take that spot. So, a lot of times, it's not so much the mental demanding spot in terms of like the cognitive workload. It's like, can I get myself jazzed up to go exercise for an hour, which hasn't been an issue or gone down yet. So, we'll see. But... Yeah, so I'm I'm hanging on, but I I definitely see that it's it's a little bit more work during these COVID times, and it takes longer to get into that deep focused work than than I'm used to. All
2: right, thanks, guys. Uh, so now you're up, and you've spent ninety minutes doing um, we've described, and a couple people asked about your in-home office space. So I think a lot of people. Never used to have a real dedicated in-home office space. They would go to an office, but now we're all working from home. Or many of us are have the luxury of working from home, and we've set up um, offices in our homes. And I know, you know, peak performance. You talked a bit about this with priming, but and do you do you use any of those um, skills from peak performance or those practices from peak performance related to priming or otherwise? Can you describe your in-home office? Where is it? What things do you intentionally have there? Are there items that you intentionally keep out of your in home office? Do you ever, do you always work there? Do you ever work anywhere else in your home? I think people might be interested. Uh, in hearing about this and maybe incorporating some of these practices into their routine. So, Steve?
1: Sure. Yes. I'm a big believer in setting up your environment around you to almost prime you for action. We talked a lot about this in peak performance. So, if you're interested on the science, I'd suggest checking that out. But basically, I, I think of it as environment invites action. So, what kind of action do I want invited? So, my office is a a small room in my house. Um, It's not very big, but it works. And basically, I try and keep everything around that related to work. So, on my desk, I have my notebooks, which I have a different notebook for each major project. So, it could be a book project, it could be a coaching notebook, it could be you know, um, just kind of ideas or, or something else. And I just have those sitting on basically the right-hand side of my desk. On the left-hand side of my desk, I have the books that are relevant to the work that I'm doing. So, not all my books, but, you know, three or four that are relevant that I'm referencing um, in that moment with that work. And besides that on my desk, I have some pens, and then my microphone for recording podcasts. And then in front of me on the wall on my desk, I have a small whiteboard where I generally again write what I'm working on in this moment to kind of center me. And then I have um, a cork board that a lot of times I'll just put up post-it notes on like Core, what I'd call like my purpose or my values that I'm like really trying to use as reminders to keep me focused on what I'm doing in that moment, and that's that's kind of it in my office. And you know, um, to answer the rest of, do I always work here? I do most of my deep work here, but at certain points, especially during COVID times. I find myself hitting a wall and almost, you know, becoming uh, needing a change of scenery. So I'll go and work in my living room on the couch, or sometimes in my bedroom on the bed, and you know, just change the scenery up. Sometimes I'll lay on my living room floor, um, change the scenery and environment up if I get stuck. Normally. I would go to a coffee shop and sit down and and do some deep focus work if my home office didn't work and in fact, I prefer doing a lot of my work at a coffee shop just because it invites writing a little bit better with with more limited distractions in my mind but... Again, we have to kind of update and change as our uh, circumstances change. So, I try and shift that by kind of shifting around in my house uh, as my energy for work kind of waned and as I see myself, you know, succumbing or using more distractions or social media or whatever have you in that moment.
0: So Steve gave a a pretty long and detailed answer, and I have many of the same habits um, around preference at a coffee shop. I love what Steve said about his books that are related to the project that he's working on. Um, I make sure that I have the same thing, a bookshelf right above my desk that has, I don't know, the 20 to 30 books that I'm drawing information and inspiration from in my own bigger writing project. The, um, I guess the only thing that is maybe a little bit different for me, and it's very much a temporary thing, is my family and I, as many of you know, we recently moved to Asheville, North Carolina, and our forever home is not yet ready. So we're staying in a long term rental. Um, So it doesn't have like the space. That is perfectly designed as an office. The house is smaller and we have a two and a half year old that has been running around up until he just started preschool. Um, So it's really forced me to not get attached to any particular space. Um, And it's a lot less hard than I thought it would be. I, I actually don't say this sarcastically. Coffee goes a long way. So if I have a deep work block in the morning, as I explained earlier, and then another deep work block, maybe for two hours in the afternoon, I'll have a coffee before that afternoon block. Um, And then the other thing is sitting in a chair can be really hard for me, even if it's the most comfortable chair there is. So I do a lot of um, writing on the ground in the prone position. And maybe this is 2MI, excuse me, maybe this is TMI, 2MI, too much information, but um, I, I find that it's just easier on my back. Um, and the last thing that I want to be doing when I'm working on a chapter of a book or an essay is thinking about, is my posture good? Does my back hurt? Is my back going to hurt later because I'm slouching? So if I catch myself thinking about that, that's generally a good sign to, um, to move to the ground. So I, I do a lot of work on the ground.
2: Thanks. Uh, I know a lot of readers are probably grasping for like real, like tangible. What can I do today, right now, to help me uh, perform better? And so with Steve's example of having different notebooks for different things he's working on, for me that has that was such a game changer um, in my law career when I started to have a different notebook for each matter that I was working on. It just it it almost felt like different. Like everything was just so organized. It was both organized. For me, like like working wise, but also I think just like the visual of having everything separated really helped me feel like I was in control of everything that I was working on. So I love the different notebooks for different things you're working on. Okay, the next question again about working from home. uh, Someone asks, it's hard to stay motivated when working from home. I feel a lot more detached from the work and my colleagues, and the days sort of blend together. How do you stay motivated when you're working from home, Brad?
0: Mood follows action. I said it earlier. You just get going. I um, I don't think that being dependent... like I would say to the questioner that I used to think like that, and I think the question is backwards. I think what you really want to do is ask yourself how can I get motivated when I'm not in the way is to start working. Um, so sorry, that might not have made sense. It makes sense in my own brain. I guess what I'm saying is that being reliant on motivation to get going uh, can be a trap because when you're not motivated, then you don't get going. But there's so much research that we've talked uh, about ad infinitum on the podcast and our books and our blogs that we'd like to think that you need to feel good to get going. But more often than not, once you get going, then you feel good. So trying to psychologically break any story that you have in your mind that ties motivation to good work and just say that, hey, I don't have to feel motivated, but I can still get started and then see what happens. So that's the mindset shift that I would recommend. And then really tactically... um, Another thing that we've written extensively about on the blog is the importance of um, physical and temporal boundaries. So particularly if you're someone that was accustomed to going to another space to work, whether it's a traditional workplace or if you're a creative, uh, a studio, a cafe, um, what have you, you'd get up and leave in the morning, you'd come back at night, that would mark the start of the day, the end of the day, and it would be in a different space. And with COVID, if you're working from home, you don't really mark the start of the day or the end of the day in the same way, and you're in the same space. So to the extent that you can, creating um, boundaries that help start the day, end the day, and if you have the room in your living space to have some physical boundaries, that goes a long way. Showering is a great example. You know, it's so funny. There's so much like performative despair on Twitter and people saying, How dare you tell me to shower in the morning when I'm working from home? I don't have to shower. And it's like, All right, but you're complaining about how miserable you are. Maybe if you showered, you'd start feeling better. Um, So I actually think showering in the morning is a great temporal boundary. If you can't drive to work, well, showering somewhat close to triggering your mind to get started. Um, So that would be my response. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think those are, are
1: great suggestions and a great way of framing it. You know, I always look at it as in running terms, as I do with everything, but it's it's getting out the door. It's not, I don't need to be motivated to do a 10-mile a run. I need to be motivated to get out the door for the first couple minutes, and then I let the rest take care of itself, and if it's 10 miles or two hours of writing, great. If it's 30 minutes, great too. So, to me, it's just getting out the door and letting the rest take care of itself. Um, the other part, the other couple things I'll add really quickly is um, for myself, a lot of times I find it helps to do something different. So, if you're struggling on one project Try something different. Try working on it in a different avenue for 30 minutes and see if that helps when you come back to the other thing. So, a lot of times I'm struggling, let's say on a writing project, I'll turn my attention to something else like creating training plans, right? Which is similar but uses kind of a different part of my brain, a different part of my creativity and then I'll try and come back to that writing project uh, later And then the other thing is, I would just say, especially during COVID times is uh, allow yourself and give yourself defined periods where it's okay to not be motivated, where it's okay if you want to, to go binge Netflix or whatever it is that you like to do. Now, I I think there's danger sometimes in that that becomes the norm, but a lot of times that's overblown if we just kind of define it as, you know what? I'm exhausted, I'm tired, or not even that, I'm just lacking motivation and and feel kind of apathetic. Well, give myself time to do things that, you know, kind of take your mind away from that for a while and then define when you're going to come back to the work.
2: Great. So now we are well into our work day and people want to know what you're eating. So, uh, we have a question that says, uh, for me, breakfast is easy. I make a smoothie or toast with something on it and dinner's easy because there's more foresight and planning involved, but lunch is hard. I'm used to eating lunch out and now I find myself eating lunch at home and I never know what to eat. And I'm just staring at the fridge. What do you guys eat for lunch? Steve, what do you eat for lunch?
1: All right. Mine is going to be very boring. Um, My breakfast and lunch, honestly, to address that question, and, you know, I know there's some debate in the nutrition field on this topic, which is always interesting, but my breakfast and lunch don't look that different from a day-to-day schedule. My dinner does. My dinner is... Varied and changes with the day, but my breakfast and lunch are pretty routine based, and a lot of that is I don't want to think too much about it, um, and I, you know, it's it's just something that I kind of check the box off. So, what's my my lunch? It's almost always a sandwich of some sort. Uh, you know, it depends week to week. I try and vary it a little bit between like turkey and cheese and ham and cheese. And then I add some fruit to it. So, the fruit varies week to week. Could be pineapple, mango, peach, apple, pear. On the sandwich? What?
0: No, separate. You put Oh, got it. All right, yeah. you said add some fruit. I was thinking though, like you know, the pineapple ham and cheese sounds like a good pizza. You know, you might, maybe you it'll want be to that. that but, sandwich.
1: sorry, in addition to it, and then water to drink, and that is literally it for my for my lunches. Some fruit on the side, some
0: sandwich, and call it a day. Yeah, I um, I am similar to Steve. Probably not surprising. I think when Steve said it's boring, that's the whole point is that you don't have to think about it. So I very much view um, my breakfast, lunch, and snack as fuel to get me to be able to do what I want to do, which is use my body and use my brain. And then dinner, I very much... View is a time to enjoy. So like Steve, dinners are varied. They're much, much, much more interesting than the other meals. I wake up, I have coffee. um, I open the fridge and stare aimlessly. As Caitlin said, I grab a handful of whatever seems interesting and I put it in my mouth. Um, I do my hour and a half of work. I train. I take my son to preschool. I come home. Excuse me. Yes. I, well, that orders a little bit off. I take my son to preschool, then train. Um, then I make a pretty hearty smoothie. Um, and then for lunch, I'll have a sandwich. Generally, um, I'm trying my best to really have a, as close to vegan slash vegetarian diet as possible. I eat a lot of eggs, so I guess it's more close to vegetarian. So maybe I'll have tempeh or avocado or hummus with cheese. Um, And then in the afternoon, before my second big block of deep focus work, I'll have coffee with milk. And I will have um, some kind of snack that is generally like pretzels dipped in almond butter or wheat thins dipped in almond butter. Uh, And then as I mentioned, dinner. Um, Caitlin is a phenomenal chef. She loves cooking. So we, we generally mix up dinner. I will say that when we don't have the time or energy to mix up dinner... Um, my go-to is a five egg omelet with cheese. And I got this from our mutual friend, Dan John. I literally tell Caitlin, every vegetable we have in the refrigerator, put in the middle of the omelet. Um, I just feel like omelets are delicious and it's a great way to get a lot of vegetables in. So that is my, um, that's my answer on how I eat.
2: It seems like we all have the same trend of, basically eating somewhat the same thing every day until dinner. I mean, that's what I do too. I basically have avocado toast. I have a smoothie and I'll probably have also some sort of like pretzels or rice crackers and peanut butter, almond butter type thing, cheese. And then we have dinner. Um, and it's like, I think it helps take some of that like decision fatigue out of the way too, when you just kind of have things locked in like that. So on the topic of smoothies, I think people are probably very interested to know what's in your smoothie. I think people take their smoothies very um, seriously and it's very personal to everyone. And I'm curious what you guys, I know what Brad puts in a smoothie is about 11 ingredients. He asks me to make a smoothie. It's like 14 minutes to make his smoothie. Um, but yeah, what do you guys, why don't you share what you put in your smoothie?
0: It's not 14 ingredients. It's simple. Um, All right. So my I generally have smoothies on days that I train. Um, So this is a a post-training meal, I guess you could call it. So it's pretty hearty. All right. So my base is ice. And then I put in two scoops or about 30 grams of Vega Sport protein powder or Garden of Life protein powder, vegan, all vanilla-flavored. I put in a scoop of ground flaxseed, a scoop of chia seeds. Um, I am currently taking creatine because I'm strength training. So I put in the traditional, at least traditional based on sports science, five grams of creatine. Um, I put in peanut butter. And the most important thing is two bananas. I used to put in spinach. I stopped for whatever reason. I need to start putting in spinach again. Um, and then as I mentioned, I I do have milk in my coffee, but I try to minimize animal products. So I use almond milk for my smoothie. And if I'm really training hard, I'll put in two raw eggs. That last part was a joke. Everybody kind of paused and looked at me. I don't put in raw eggs. (laughs) Caitlin's laughing. I don't recommend it. Although now that I said it, I'm intrigued what it would do for my, um, my deadlift. So maybe I should start. You're going full on Rocky. I see. Yeah, exactly. All right, Steve, what about you? Oh,
1: man, mine are very simple. Um, Milk, uh, depending on what I have, some variation of fruit and then some protein in there. I use mine a lot for post-run kind of recovery shakes or... Sometimes post run, I'm dying of the heat and need something cold and refreshing shakes. So
0: I keep it very, very simple. I think something too. I know that we have a lot of um, a lot of athletes that listen to the show. Hopefully, the pro athletes are nailing this, but just for the the people that are recreational athletes, um, the culture has created this negative outlook towards carbohydrates. and I think it's real. And I've noticed it in myself. I've noticed it in people around me. That even if we love carbs and we're not low carb or anything, you think twice sometimes before eating a lot of carbohydrates. Um, a post-workout or early in the day smoothie is a great chance to kind of resist that thinking and just go carb-heavy. So, literally, I used to put one banana in my smoothie. I'm like, why not two? I just trained. Why not three? Why not add some M Ms to my smoothie? Um, there are obviously healthier sugar choices, but I think it's a really, really good chance to kind of break down some of that thinking that very much permeates the culture that carbohydrates are bad and just load that smoothie up with carbs and pay close attention to how you feel the rest of the day and how you feel the next day at your workout. And my guess is that the more carbs you put into that smoothie, the better you'll feel. I don't think unless you're using like a bucket for your smoothie cup, I genuinely don't think you could overfill a smoothie cup with carbohydrates, the more the better.
1: Love it. Carbs, as a lifelong distance runner, carbs are your friend if you're an endurance athlete. They are not your enemy. They are your friend. And for people who might think, oh, you know, le- recent keto, whatever, I won't get into that. But from an endurance performance perspective carbs are the main fuel source. There's tons of science on this. There was a recent research study using uh, world-class endurance athletes trained either in a um, you know low-carb, ketogenic way versus a kind of traditional higher-carb, moderate-carb way, and it was without a doubt clear evidence that low-carb diminished performance. So, just putting it out there, you know, it has its uses for other reasons. But if you're an endurance athlete, like, don't fall for that other hype. Um, you need everything, carbs, fats, and proteins. But, you know, remember what fuels you on really long rides or runs.
0: So, I, um, I am cheating a little bit. I haven't looked at any of the questions, but Caitlin just kind of nudged me and pointed and said, should I ask the next question? Because the next question is all about um, diet. And I want to add in and this might be something where Steve and I disagree. I don't know. I I do try to time my carbohydrates. So I stack my carbohydrates early in the day because that is when my body is going to turn that glucose into fuel and use it. And it's also when after a workout or just even after like the movement of the day my body, my muscles are most receptive to what's called glycogen, which is the fuel that you get from glucose and carbohydrates. Um, I try not to eat a lot of carbs at dinner. Now, does this mean that I'm quote unquote low carb and like I'm not going to have a sweet potato or rice? Absolutely not. But generally speaking, I'd rather my dinners be something that is very, very high in protein and then as much vegetables as I can get. And carbohydrates are kind of the side course. Um, am I rigid about this? No. Like we have pizza night. Pizza is the opposite of that, but I love pizza. So it's not any kind of rule, but it's more of a general mindset around eating for me, which is, hey, carbs fuel activity. So eat the carbs around the time you're doing activity. Um, and then as the day winds down, go away from carbs and focus most on, on protein and produce. Um, What do you think about that, Steve?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. About a decade or so ago, there was a lot um, into the timing of of carbohydrates and even protein. And there was this idea uh, that you mentioned called like the recovery window, which is when we're most sensitive to, you know, utilizing those carbohydrates after a workout, etc., and that idea still holds, but it's not as strong as we thought again a decade ago. A decade ago it was kind of like get your carbs in within 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes and after 90 minutes it's almost like oh gosh, like you're resistant to degree it it doesn't matter. Well, now we know that, you know, based on the latest research that I've seen that yeah, that window still holds to degree, but it's not it's not as clear cut concise, uh, impactful as we thought. So, I think in general, the idea of timing when you're looking at carbs and even protein intake, right? There's some good research on taking protein before bed, uh, increasing kind of your anabolic recovery processes overnight, et cetera, et cetera, which is good. And I think, you know, matters, but I think as you said there, it's important not to obsess over it because the same can see, be said with like carbohydrates, depending on the kind you take, right, could be of uh, beneficial at dinner in the terms that it can aid sleep, uh, again, depending on the time, the kind you take. So, you know, you can experiment around with it. I wouldn't obsess over it and I also would look at your individual needs. You know, when I look at endurance athletes who are training to a high, with high loads and high intensities, um, generally I'm for carbs most all the time they can get in them because again, I'll deal with athletes marathoners running 100 to 120 miles a week. Um, and another thing that I think is important there is, again, if you're doing high volume or high intensity of anything, it's like, how are you recovering? And if you need a boost of recovery, we'll use that timing of protein, both before bed, but also, again, there's some decent research that shows that if you kind of stack that throughout the day, you'll get this nice bump in protein synthesis throughout the day, which helps with muscle recovery repair. So, again, we can time things. Um, I think it matters to a little degree. If you're just a recreational athlete, I wouldn't worry about it one bit in terms of timing for, you know, re- performance. But you just kind of got to look at your situation, know that it matters a little bit, but know that the basic foundations matter much more so than the timing of intake.
2: So, am I the only person who eats their smoothie with cereal and a spoon, <laughs> who treats their smoothie like milk?
1: <laughs> you just might be in this group.
2: Oh, it's so good. Um, so, Steve, I have, a, I have a question going off what you said. So, do you have athletes who come to you, very serious collegiate professional athletes, who come to you and say, "I am paleo, I am gluten free, I am, I do intermittent fasting." And they're very serious about it or strict about it. Do you have athletes that come to you and say that? And how do you uh, reconcile that with performance?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I think diet is an interesting thing. And I think it 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 to me it depends on what their goals are and whether their dietary constraints are related to some actual health problem, right? So if it's gluten free and you have a high gluten sensitivity, then Sure, it makes perfect sense. If it's gluten-free, and I don't want to paint people this way, but it's gluten-free because, you know, someone just kind of, you know, heard something and wants to go off of gluten but don't have like a sensitivity to it, then we're going to have that conversation. And I think as an endurance athlete, again, separating the health situations, you know, if they're type 2 diabetic, then some keto diet, you know, might work well to a degree. Again, that's left for experts and doctors and stuff like that, nutritionists who have an idea. Um, but in terms of performance, I just kind of laid out how it is, which is, if we're looking at performing at our best in the events that I work with, right? You have to have adequate carbohydrate. Now, what is ac- adequate? Well, that will vary again based on the demands and based on if you're looking at running a marathon or racing racing a 5K or a mile or 800 or whatever have you, right? They they vary the demands a little bit. So, you know, honestly, if someone comes to me and says like, hey, I'm paleo or hey, I'm, you know, ketogenic diet or whatever, choose your diet, right? And it's not for some ascribed uh, medical reason, then a lot of times my antenna goes up and, and asks like and wants to figure out why. Because I'm not a fan of Diets per se, in particular, especially when they're looking at extreme restrictions um, of food groups. Because I think that over the long haul might be an issue. And also with the athletes that I work with, might lead towards what I'd call disordered thinking about diets. Because endurance athletes, in particular, are pretty susceptible to disordered thinking about diets because, again, we're a lot of times very thin athletes who train a lot, who need a lot of fuel, but are unfortunately taught that like thin is great, et cetera, for performance. So, we have that. And a lot of times endurance athletes are the kind of obsessive type, perfectionist type um, so, there's a lot of like psychological bias towards falling in these disordered thinking. So, if someone comes to me that, that's the first thing I, I'm trying to check out and, and you know, a lot of times try and shift that mindset to have more of a, you know, flexible uh, eating pattern or habit.
0: Steve, I'm curious, have you ever had athletes that come to you that are either vegetarian and or vegan? And if so, do you treat that the same or differently?
1: It's a good question. You know, I have, I've had college athletes who are both and post-collegiate who are vegetarian and vegan. And there, again, I'm after or what is the reasoning behind it, um, uh, you know, largely. And a lot of times the reasoning behind it is related towards like, you know, uh, views on, Animals and and all that stuff, which is totally fine and I try to respect. But we have that conversation on what it means to function and get what you need if you're one of those diets. So, I think vegan diets can work, but I think you have to be very deliberate on making sure you're getting your nutritional needs, especially if you're training at at such a high high level. So, I think that the... The difference between something like a vegetarian and, let's say, a a keto diet is a keto diet is eliminating one of the basic food groups, right? It's saying carbs are bad. We need to have these so low that we're functioning in ketosis. A vegetarian diet and even a vegan diet doesn't say that carbs, fat, or protein are bad, right? It just says we're not getting them through animal products. So... That means we can still satisfy our basic nutrition requirements, but a lot of times it means that we have to be, you know, very cognizant on what we're taking in to, you know, make sure, especially from if you're looking at an endurance athlete from a like iron standpoint of making sure you're getting your adequate uh, nutrients to support what you're doing.
0: Wow, that's a great answer. I never thought of it that way in terms of the restricting a macronutrient versus um, not restricting a macronutrient but a, a source of food that um, is usually grounded as you mentioned in in some kind of ethical view. I don't think I've ever heard of someone say that I eat a ketogenic diet because it's in my um my spiritual or my religious belief system. Um, yeah. <laughs> Caitlin just said yet um. That's true. Yeah, it's 2020. I'm waiting for like the the, the ketogenic diet religion to take hold. Um, and because we might have some listeners that do practice a ketogenic diet. So here's what I'd say there. If you are, and I, I work, right, my coaching clientele is very different than Steve. I am working with entrepreneurs and executives that actually tend to struggle with their weight because they don't necessarily have healthy eating habits. Um, I say this, I say that, Whatever diet you can stick to that allows you to get the appropriate amount of calories that avoids stuff that is wrapped in plastic and that includes lots of vegetables works. And if you want to eat a ketogenic diet, fine. Um, Again, now if you're training for a marathon, probably not okay, even if you're a recreational athlete because injury risk goes up so high. Um, But if you're just someone that is trying to eat healthy, then that's great. Now, do I personally believe anything about ketones? And I mean, I do believe that ketosis happens. Do I think it has an impact on the actual outcome that we care about, which is health? Of course not. Um, I don't because of science. <laughs> um, what I do think is that something like a ketogenic diet um, takes away the decision-making around food and basically doesn't let you eat processed food. You can't eat at McDonald's or Burger King if you're on a ketogenic diet. I mean, I guess you could like take the bun off, but who's going to do that? So, I'm a little bit more lenient on that kind of stuff um, for the individuals that I work with. Again, so long as it meets my my criteria, which is appropriate number of calories, avoid stuff that is processed slash wrapped in plastic, and includes lots of vegetables. So, Steve, poke holes in that thinking or tell me that it's right?
1: no i think th- i think that's fine and that's right again my hatred of diets is a lot of times because restricted eating causes distorted thinking and when you restrict for too long then a lot of times you just kind of succumb back to the pull to the normal as you know from a stress or adaptation standpoint like there's a a large pull towards like whatever your your kind of homeostasis is and that includes eating so I I, I like the advice. I think the most important thing is like finding something that works for you um, in those parameters that that you define. What I don't want to see is people jump from fad to fad in search of a diet that quote unquote works. And it works for a short time because it gives you very defined rules that you can stick with when motivation is high. But once motivation wanes and you know that diet loses its novelty and it becomes normal, then you just kind of go back, then restriction becomes a burden instead of a rule that helps,
0: yeah. And the other thing I think is that if, um, if you become attached to a diet because of the group that identifies with that diet, that's fine. I strongly recommend that you look into Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. There are all kinds of belief systems that are so much richer and contain so much more spiritual wisdom than a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet or an intermittent fasting diet, what have you. So if your diet is becoming more like a religion maybe it's worth considering exploring some real religions um, and seeing if they don't offer more upside than your diet. I love that point. Well done.
2: Okay. So now uh, let's do a, a quick question after after that long one. What are your favorite apps? So maybe this might require you guys to pull out your phone, but what are your either your favorite apps because – it's just something that's enjoyable for a couple minutes during the day, or maybe it actually helps you in some way, gives you information, allows you to track something. But what, what are your favorite apps? I know, Brad, that you tend to have a very minimalist phone, but I do know um, that there are some apps on your phone that you, you hold dear. So what, what, what can you recommend?
0: Oh, dear. So um, shout out to our friend Cal Newport, who we had on the podcast earlier, one of our early episodes. Uh, Cal wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, which convinced me to clear my phone of pretty much every single app, start from scratch, and evaluate apps, not just based on do they provide any value to me, but is there a net benefit? So for example, having Twitter on my phone provided value. I could tweet from my phone. If I was bored, I could quickly pull something up. But it also had an enormous cost, which is that I couldn't think creatively when I had my phone on me because I would just open up Twitter instead. So things like Twitter got lost. So the apps that I hold dear. um, I love the app Insight Timer as a meditation app. It has lots of guided meditations as well as a very simple timer for unguided meditation. Um, in my own meditation practice, a teacher that has been very helpful is someone named John Kabat-Zinn. He has this super old rudimentary series of apps: Jkz Series One and Jkz Series Two. So those are great guided meditations by John Kabat-Zinn that I'll sometimes use. Um, I'm a big Spotify fan. I love music. I get all my music through Spotify. I have a premium membership. I use Apple Podcasts to listen to podcasts. Um, And then I am completely reliant on the map function. So (laughs) I would not be here without Google Maps. I don't know where I would be. I would be chronically lost without Google Maps. Um, so that's probably the most important app on my phone. And then the last one um, is an app called True Coach. Um, not that I use with my coaching clients, but that um, I work with a great strength and conditioning coach... Um, And he uses this app that allows me to very quickly jot down my workouts and upload videos when necessary. So even if he doesn't um, have me in person for a session, he can provide feedback. Um, Other than that, I don't really use too many apps. I'm scrolling through my phone. I still have some older ones, but they tend to be things like White noise from when my son wouldn't sleep through the night. Um, Square, I like Square for my coaching business, but again, like now I'm getting into stuff that is 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 pretty much um, need based, not want. So, couple meditation apps, Spotify, and thank God for Google Maps. <laughs> All right, um, actually,
1: very similar. I don't have the Twitter app on my phone for the same reasons. Google Maps is pro- is almost certainly my. Most utilized app, and I would be lost if I did not have that. So that is on the front page. Other highlights: I use Spotify for listening to music while I work and write. I use the app Libby, which is basically connects to your local library and allows you to borrow um, tons of e. Uh, ebooks or audible books i use it for audible books mostly for listening in the car or commute uh, for stuff let's see what else Uh, for my running coaching i use final surge which is a fantastic app which allows me to upload training and then syncs with the athletes Uh, Garmin watches or GPS watches and I can give feedback on the go kind of similar to what Brad mentioned uh, his coach for lifting uses Uh, I use a the app called stopwatch which allows me to have about 10 different stopwatches going at once which comes in handy for coaching a lot of times Let me go through and see if there's anything else that is worthy. I don't, I mean, just need-based apps that I use a lot. I use Apple Podcasts for my podcast app. And besides that, I don't think there's anything else that, um, that I use too much besides like banking apps and stuff like that. But that is kind of it.
2: Thanks. i been looking through my phone. I think my favorite ones the New York Times crossword puzzle app. I really like All Trails for finding hikes, especially now being in Asheville for the first time. It's we are um, overwhelmed by the amount of trails that are offered, and so it's a really great way to filter based on distance and elevation and how far it is from you. Uh, I will echo Final Surge as the as the athlete. Um, it's also it's a very Good app for getting your workouts from coaches. Uh and then never, never a dull moment on Zillow. It's always, it's always if you've got ten minutes, you can have a fun time. Um
0: or you could write a book.
2: Or you could write a book, or you could just like look at houses in very, you know, exciting, fun areas. Um Okay. So our day is is winding down. Our workday is winding down. And we had a reader who asked our listener, excuse me, at the start of COVID and quarantine, there were Zoom happy hours, Zoom board games at the end of the day, Zoom wine clubs, Zoom poker games. And now it seems like people have gotten kind of tired of those. What are the best ways that you found to stay connected with people six months into the pandemic? I think it's probably very different if you would ask someone one month into the pandemic versus six months into the pandemic, uh, Steve.
1: Oh yeah. This is something that I still struggle with. Um, it's tough. You know, I, I think the way I've handled it is a couple fold is, you know, in person, you can't see it. it's going to depend on where you live and all that your beliefs and all that, that kind of stuff. But er, early on, we kind of, Almost had like a very small close-knit, um, pandemic crew who we'd, you know, two or three friends who we'd go on runs with and stuff. And that was great, uh, for a long while. And we just kind of kept ourselves and, and kind of kept that close-knit group, which was great for like keeping some sort of social connection. Um, more recently, I would say, you know, Making time and being deliberate on calling friends and family has been my most important thing to do to keep connection and closeness there. Um, it doesn't substitute for in-person, you know, connection, but it does a decent job and then i think i think there's like some spontaneity that needs to happen too you know i think one of the best things that happened maybe a a week or two ago is one of my old college teammates or roommates just sent out a group link or a zoom link in a in our old college group chat and whoever was available during that time just got on and and you know sh- talked and chatted and reconnected and saw how everyone was doing and i think you know adding something in that instead of like structured and planned like made it a heck of a lot more enjoyable than i think like oh i'm gonna show up to this like zoom get together and you know that's kind of what i've done Uh, i think definitely filling that need is is something that a lot of us are struggling with. So I'm curious how uh, you're, you've been doing so, Brad.
0: I just try to keep things pretty simple. I've always been um, someone that has like a pretty polarized approach to relationships. So I've got, I don't know, I could count on one hand. Steve, you made it onto the one hand. <laughs> but outside of my immediate family, I've got maybe like four or five people that I care deeply about and that I stay in very close touch with. So these are phone calls at least once, if not twice, three times a week. It's exchanging funny text messages when we come across stuff throughout the day. With you, it's working on all these projects at the same time. Um, With my friend Justin, it's sharing workout videos with each other. Just fun stuff with people I really care about. Then after that, I've got, I don't know a hundred, a lot of loose contacts. And these are people who I love, but I love even though I might only talk to them once a month and it might only be an email. Um, So people that I consider friends that are in my network that if they really needed help and and asked me, I'd go help them and I know they'd do the same. But they're not people that I really feel the need to be close to either physically or even mentally um, unless there's a reason to be. I don't have too many in between friends and it's not good or bad. It just is. So for me, it's been fairly simple because there's only a couple people that I stay in touch with and it never feels like forcing it because I genuinely want to be in touch with them.
2: All right. So I think you guys both can relate to this next question. Uh, which says, I find that being my own boss is a gift and a curse. I'm in control of when and where I work. And usually this means I can always be working. There's always more that I can do. How do you turn off from work? Brad?
0: Um, Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. This is something that I work on with all my coaching clients. And um, in like I used to be able well, not even I, I did this with myself. You think that, oh, if I could just get a little bit more efficient, then I can get everything done. So you spend time problem solving and looking for ways to, quote unquote, optimize your day or um, or do more or cut out the fluff or what have you. Um, and if only I could do that, then I'd be able to turn it off at six. It never works because there's always more to do. So I learned this lesson myself. I learned it with coaching clients that now I short circuit that half a year of trying and failing. And I am a huge believer in, for this particular thing, very strict and rigid boundaries. So in my case, it is 6.30 rolls around. My computer is off. My phone is off and plugged in in a room that I won't be accessing. Um, and I am not going to pull it back up unless it is the week that I am launching a book, period. Um, I Because I'm not a transplant surgeon or a trauma surgeon or an oncologist with patients in the hospital with cancer, I have yet to have something come across after 6.30 that needed me that I couldn't just wait until the next morning. There are things that you think need you, but they don't unless you're in one of those protected categories of, um, of a medical worker that's dealing with true emergencies. So it's a very hard line take. Um, I try not to be very rigid in other areas of my life and with my coaching clients. But with this, I think the only way to do it is boundaries. And I think you have to be very careful about your list of exceptions because pretty soon exceptions become the norm. So, totally fine to identify the equivalent of, you know, launch week of a book in your life. But outside of that, um, the boundary has got to hold. Otherwise, it, it's pointless. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that. I, I think the other thing
1: to add in there is just kind of being okay leaving work to to be done right it's like being okay leaving your desk with not having everything done and everything perfectly aligned and it takes some time and it takes almost a mental shift but like getting to a point where it's like okay i'm not fully you know complete with this and it's okay like i'm gonna figure it out and trust yourself to get on it the next morning i think is an important mindset shift i think the boundaries is something that i do but i have more flexibility and i'm not sure if that's good or bad. I'm sure you could argue either way. I think a lot of times we do need really defined uh, boundaries and I try to do that by having an end point to my work day and having things that I do that mark that transition. So right now it's going for an afternoon walk um, or dinner, whatever comes first. And after that I'm done and not doing work stuff for the most part unlike Brad what I do do is I, I keep my phone in the other room but it's on so I sometimes need it I, I just feel like as a coach to college athletes that's part of my responsibility and throughout the years I've had several instances where something happened and I am essentially the surrogate dad to some of these kids who have uh, who have come a long way and and put their trust in me and I, I feel like I as, a, as long as I'm coaching college, I have to have that op- opportunity um, for them to contact me in emergency situations there. So, I keep my phone there and open, but I stru- try my best to stay off of it unless it's uh, something like that.
0: And to be clear, in my instance, um, it's not that I won't use my phone after 6.30. It's literally just that I keep it in another room. So, it's not the default thing. Um, though I am not the surrogate dad to Steve, I often text Steve after 630 because I want to, because something funny came up or because I'm watching a basketball game and we just did a podcast on choking and someone is being clutch or choking. Um, so it's something that Steve and I've talked about. I think what I'm getting at is I make sure that I actually proactively want to be on my phone after 630 versus my phone drawing me in. Um, so, I guess that's a difference worth pointing out. Um, cool.
2: And, you know, social norms change over time. And something that I've noticed now is that people text all the time about very random, unurgent things, whereas people rarely call unless it's important. So, I think that something that can work, um, that I've seen work, is if you just have your texts on silent. And you have your phone ringer on, I doubt you'll miss the important thing. Um, okay. We have two questions left. So uh, because we had the question about 90 minutes in the morning, what are the, what are the what do you do during your first 90 minutes that you're up? I'd like to know from you guys, Steve, you first, what do you do the 90 minutes leading up to going to bed?
1: <sighs> Good question. Yeah. Um... Most of it's very routine based. So, um, it's taking care of the things that I need to, which is basically feeding the dog and make sure it has the dog has water to drink overnight because our dog is strange and likes to eat at like 1 a.m. So it's taking care of those things. And then my favorite thing to do before bed is read. So, I try and reserve like 30 to 45 minutes before I'm going to sleep as time to read something. A lot of times, I like it to be a what I call a slightly lighter read. Uh, so, it doesn't take my full focus and attention. And that's kind of my routine.
0: Yeah. So, mine is um, pretty different in that, like, I don't know, I'd say there is no real routine. So we try to put our son to bed before 8:30. And until then, it is just playing with Theo. And between 8:30 and nine, um, it's generally watching TV with Caitlin now that basketball's on, watching basketball. Or even just being in the same room, but doing something different. Caitlin's on her iPad doing these puzzles um, that I don't understand. And I am reading or staring at the wall. And um, when nine rolls around, like, I'm so grateful for this. I've got all kinds of issues, but one is not falling asleep. So I don't need any kind of elaborate bedtime routine. Um, by eight o'clock, it's hard for me to walk in a straight line by nine o'clock. It's hard for me to spell my name and I'm generally out cold within five minutes of hitting the pillow. Um, so I guess like brushing my teeth is my routine before bed. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate because I, I can fall asleep easily. Uh, knock on wood. Hopefully that doesn't change over time.
2: Well, thanks guys so much for all of this great advice. And I think that, um, you've given me and your listeners so much advice that I think it would just be interesting to know from you guys to wrap all of this up, who do you look to for advice? Steve, I'll go with you.
1: Oh, gosh. That's a tough question. That's a good question. Um, My advice comes from Brad keeping me in check. Um, I'll say that. Um, Besides that, you know, I actually try to listen to podcasts that keep me kind of interested on things and then read books. And a lot of times for advice, like big life advice, I default to kind of ancient wisdom in in books to kind of guide me and center me and keep me going rather than falling into the Uh, Minutia and details of kind of modern life uh, advice. I don't know what that means as I give a lot of modern life advice, but I try to fall back on kind of established ancient wisdom that correlates with science as my own advice.
0: Caitlin, as you were talking, Steve nudged me and said, fuck, he took your answer. Um, She actually didn't say fuck. I added that in because I love to swear since I had a two-and-a-half-year-old. I never would swear now that we have a kid, I swear. You'd think it's the opposite. I don't know why this has happened. Anyways, um, <laughs> you did take my answer in many ways. Like You're one of the first people that I go to for advice. Um, particularly, a very concrete example is Steve taught me this phrase called look the other way, which basically says when the whole culture is going in one direction or when a field of science is moving in one direction, look the other way. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong. Oftentimes, the reason that everyone's going in one direction is because it's so obvious it's the right thing. But it's always just helpful to spend you know, the metaphorical one second pause to consider, well, what would the opposite be? Or in what context might the opposite thing actually hold true? So that's one of many things that I've learned from Steve. And particularly now with COVID and the political mess that we're in and all this stuff, um, it's just really helpful to look the other way. You know, like Ibram Kendi comes out with a book on anti-racism based in critical theory. And then there's another book called Cynical Theories, which is the opposite. And what I find is that as long as I keep looking back and forth the other way, I tend to think about these really complex issues in what for me feels like a nuanced, um, non-polarized, thoughtful manner. And that's been so helpful. Uh, So thank you for that, Steve. And then, yeah, ancient wisdom traditions. I freaking love Buddhism. Um, I think I'd even identify as a Buddhist now. doesn't mean that I go to temple and light incense, although that's beautiful if you do. Um, But just the very kind of hyper-rational, mixed with spiritual um, approach to life that you get in Buddhism, also in Taoism, to an extent in Stoicism, um, goes a long way for me. And... Um, also there are just like a couple thinkers, not a couple, there are so many thinkers that I love that write books. So I read their books whenever they're on a podcast, I listen to them on a podcast. Um, there are just too many to name. So it's just looking for people that I respect, that I learn from, um, and that think differently than me. Uh, cause I think that if you're just listening or reading people that, think the same exact thing that you do, um, you're going to feel good about yourself, but you're not necessarily going to learn. So that would be, Oh, and my wife, Caitlin, how could I forget? So seriously, I mean, I am so fortunate to have, um, Caitlin is a life partner and whenever I'm in a jam, I go to Caitlin and, um, you know, listeners that I am truly becoming, a a embodiment of the new masculinity because today we had a very rough drop off at preschool for Theo. He's just starting. He was crying. He was so anxious. And I called Caitlin to tell her how hard it was for both of us. And Caitlin started problem solving. Well, I could try dropping him off. You could take him earlier. Um, We could do this, that, or the other. And I said, you know, Caitlin, you taught me that sometimes when you have a problem and you share it, you don't want a problem solve. You don't want a solution. You just want to be heard. And right now, I just want to be heard. So thank you for teaching me that, Caitlin.
2: Sure. That's, you know, that's why I asked the question was to, to get that out of you in public. Just kidding.
0: Well, I think that is our list. Thank you again for joining us, Caitlin. Um Thank you to our listeners for just barraging us with these questions um, we we really appreciate it let us know if you enjoy this kind of episode it feels like in the last month now this will have been our second so we've covered a lot of ground but we're not opposed to um, to answering these kinds of questions so long as they're different than things that we've touched on before so, Um, You can find us and email us through our website, which is www.thegrowtheq.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on Amazon, subscribe. And if you write a review, you might get selected for the review of the week, which is our new little segment at the start of these shows. Steve, anything else in closing, or are we good to wrap this bad boy up? I think we're good. Thanks again
1: for all those listening. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate your questions. So until next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.